going through the, the letter, Paul's letter to the Thessalonian church in 1 Thessalonians, and we're going to be continuing now in 2 Thessalonians. And we're doing that back-to-back because there's a lot of continuity. There's, there's similar themes, but there's a different focus here. So let's turn in God's word to 2 Thessalonians. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 4. 2 Thessalonians 1, 1 through 4. Let's read God's holy, inspired word. Sylvanus and Timothy... To the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in all the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions you are enduring. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you give your word of encouragement to your saints, to your church in the middle of affliction, in the middle of hardship, in the middle of difficulties. You don't leave us alone to figure things out, God. You give us your word. God, I pray that this morning you would encourage each and every person here. Those who don't know you, Lord, I pray that you would encourage by giving your grace and your peace through the gift of repentance and conviction, Lord. And And God, I pray for all that know you, Lord, that you would give your assurance that you are at work in our lives, that you are the one who gives grace and peace. Lord, you desire to strengthen, you desire to encourage, and God, I pray that you would do that work mightily by your Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, we pray, amen. Well, I recently came across a study about 25 years ago, I'd never heard it before, and I read it and I was kind of intrigued, and it was about a test that a, a Dr. Carol Dweck, she carried it out with middle school students to, to see what the effects of praise were on the outcomes of test taking. And so they wanted to see, okay, how would different students respond if they're praised in different ways or not praised at all? Would there be any difference in outcomes in how they took the tests and what their test grades are? And so they, they had these students sit down, they gave 400 students a simple puzzle to solve And after the puzzle was completed, the students were, a third of the group was praised and said, hey, you're really smart, you did a good job. And then the other third of students were said, you know, hey, while you did a good job, you tried really hard, you must have worked really hard at this. And then the other third of students, they didn't praise at all. And then they, they looked at the outcomes of the differences of these groups and these subtle differences in the way they phrased things made a big difference in actual the next test that they took. And actually, they came to these students and they, they asked each group of the students, said, hey, which, would, would you like to take another test? It's going to be harder, but you're going to learn and you're going to grow and you're going to increase in your knowledge. Or would you rather take a test that's a little easier and you'll probably do well on that one? What would you like to do? And so the group that actually had been praised for being really smart, they opted for the easier route and they learned less. The, the group that actually was praised for their hard work not for being smart, but hey, you worked hard at this, they ended up taking the harder test and doing better. 
And it was interesting because it says, you know, 90% of the group were praised for the effort. They, they selected this harder test. They wanted to maintain their hardworking image. And the people who said, hey, well, you're smart. They had an identity based on their smartness. They selected the easier test. And, and, and in the end, the group praised for their intelligence. It, their test scores decreased by 20%. The, the effort praised group, the ones that said, hey, you're, you're working hard. They actually increased by 30%. This, the failure had actually spurred them on. Now, it's, it's, that's very relevant to how we're motivated as humans. You know, God made us. He made us to find our identity, but not our identity in our own intelligence and our own ability, but he made us to find our identity somewhere else. He made us to find our identity in him. He, he made us to well to respond to praise and to effort, but not self-effort, not to self-achievement, not to what we can do. What these researchers discovered wasn't anything new to God. He's the one who designed us. But what they were touching on is that failure doesn't have to define us. Our identity doesn't have to define us. And then later they changed up how they praised people and they saw different results. They weren't stuck. These people weren't stuck in how they took the tests. Our own perceived intelligence, our perceived lack of intelligence, it doesn't need to define us. We encounter failure in life or difficulty. It doesn't need to define you. What we're defined about, what the Bible says we're defined about is what God says is true about us and the fact that God is at work in us. If you're a Christian, because we know God and because we know who we are in God and God is at work in us, it gives us strength and hope for the future. It gives us strength to be able to encounter difficulties and challenges in life and actually to endure. And it gives us hope for the future that no matter what challenges are coming, he will enable us to endure. And that's what the Apostle Paul is writing to them about. He's writing to a church that is undergoing some very hard things. They're a church that Paul has found out now. He's probably gotten a report back from Timothy. He wrote his first letter. Timothy took it back to them. He took it to the church. He found out how the church was doing. He worked there a little while. He came back probably a few months later. We're not sure the exact timing. And when he came back, though, he came back with a report that he says, Paul, things have gotten worse in the church in the sense of there's, there's more affliction. They're enduring more persecution. The culture around them is against them more because they are Christians. And so Paul here, he's writing to encourage them. Because they, they need encouragement. And so Paul here, he begins this letter with, with four verses that are really all focused on encouragement. Now often when we read New Testament letters, we can just skip over these openings. We can think, this is just a standard greeting, but this is really only the second letter probably written in the entire New Testament. Maybe the third, depends on with Galatians before Thessalonians or not. So this has not become the standard yet, but Paul is now setting the stage here. He's saying that what you need first in order to have strength to endure affliction, what you need first in order to have hope to be steadfast is you need encouragement. You need real encouragement. You don't need to be pumped up. You don't need to be hyped up. You don't need to be manipulated. You don't need false hope, but you need real hope. And, and that's what these verses are meant to give to us. They're meant to give us real and lasting hope. This church was undergoing persecution. They were experiencing affliction, and it only increased. The city around them was full of idolatry, and so because they had become Christians, they no longer were bowing down to these idols, no longer participating in these things. They were seen as outcasts. They no longer were worshiping the temple cult of Caesar. 
They no longer were looking to the government and the emperor for their answers for peace. And because of that, they they no longer had peace with the people around them. They no longer had favor or grace with the people around them because now they were different and, and they were being persecuted for it. They were being afflicted for it. Back in, in chapter 17 of Acts, it tells us that why they were being afflicted. It says that, that they took them out of the city. It says in Acts 17, 5, the, the people there, they formed a mob. They set the city in uproar. They attacked the house of Jason. They sought to bring him out to the crowd. And when they couldn't find him, they dragged Jason out, some of the brothers before the city authorities, and they shouted, these men have turned the world upside down. And they've come here also. It says, and Jason has received them, and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities, they were disturbed when they heard these things. And that disturbance had only grown over time so that now the people in Thessalonica were experiencing even greater persecution, even greater affliction, and they must have wondered, what's going on? Is something wrong? Did we really understand this message of the gospel right? And so Paul here, he writes to explain what's going on. He also writes to explain and give them perspective on their affliction, on their persecution. And in the midst of that, he doesn't want to tell them, hey, you're not going to be persecuted anymore because actually Jesus promised in this world you have many troubles. But he wants to give them courage. He wants to give them real courage, not puff them up and pretend everything's going to be okay. No, he says, no matter what happens to the world, no matter what happens around you, no matter what happens, whether you're rejected by the world or not, you can have hope, you can have encouragement, real, lasting encouragement. And what he tells them is that real strength and this real hope, it's, it begins with real encouragement from God. That's, that's what we're gonna see in this passage, that, that real hope and real strength, they begin with real encouragement from God. Ultimately, if you think about this, this whole letter, it's, it's focused on the strength and the hope that are found in God. This is, it's a very short little letter. It's only three chapters long. It's a very short letter, and it, it addresses different things in the letter. He, he's addressing the fact that they're experiencing affliction and persecution, but one day, all those who afflict them will be afflicted, and the roles will be reversed, and God will set all things right. And then he addresses the fact that, that no, um, some people have come into the church and they've said that falsely that Paul has taught that Jesus has already returned and so they're, they're tempted to be fearful, thinking, well, maybe we got it wrong. Maybe we heard the message wrong. And so Paul brings some adjustment there to their thinking. And then there's some in the church who are thinking, well, if he's returning imminently, then maybe we don't need to work. And they're taking advantage of the love of their brothers and sisters and they're not working and they're relying on other people to supply their needs. And so Paul, he's addressing all of these things, but before he addresses those things, what they need to hear is that they can have strength and hope to grow because of who they are in God and the fact that God is at work in them. They need strength to carry on. They need strength for today. And, and Christian, you might find that you are aware of affliction increasing in your own life. You know, maybe when you became a Christian, you thought, well, everything is gonna be so much better, and it is, but it's not so much easier. And we, we will face opposition. We will face opposition in the world. And if you look around the world and the culture today, the world is not growing in more affection for the church. 
The world's growing in opposition to the church. And you might be aware of that. You think, what's going on? Is, what, what, is God really in control? And you might be tempted like they were. You might be facing marginalization or ostracization, the pressure to give in to cultural norms and ideas. Maybe you're feeling the pressure of people saying you're bigoted or unloving for wanting to truly love people with the truth of God's word that transforms them instead of telling them something that's false and pacifies them. In the face of hostility and upheaval, the church then needed real encouragement. We need real encouragement too. We don't need fluff, but we do need real encouragement. So the first thing the Apostle Paul writes to them and tells them about is he, he gives them real encouragement in their identity, not in who they thought they once were because that is, has been shattered. But he wants to give them real encouragement in their identity. Previously, they identified as, you know, some of them were privileged. They were a Roman citizen. Some of them were Greek in their background. Some were Jew. Some were slaves. Some were free. They had all of these different identities prior to coming to Christ, and, and yet now they have a brand new identity. They've been made one in Christ Jesus. You know, I was thinking over the years, I placed my identity in a whole lot of different things. You know, I grew up in the South, and so once my identity was as a Southerner. You know, then I found out about my heritage, and you know, my identity was I'm a descendant of German or Norwegian, and then on my dad's side, English immigrants. I have my identity there. And then, then I've had my identity and my abilities, I've, I've, or sometimes my inabilities. Uh, I, I, I loved playing soccer. I loved being a drummer. I'm not anymore either one of those things. I think it would hurt myself if I tried to probably do either one. <laughs> you know, I, I've put my identity in all kinds of things as a security professional, an IT, a, a pastor. But all those things are fleeting, aren't they? One day, none of those identities will be mine. And the reality is, is that we're tempted to put our identity in, in what we can accomplish, in our backgrounds, in what we can earn. We're tempted to put our identity in a whole bunch of places. And when those identities get pulled away, that's when we're challenged. That's when our faith is really challenged. And, and the faith of the church in Thessalonica was being challenged. Their identity has been stripped away. And now they needed confidence. They needed true encouragement. And what Paul brings them is actual encouragement, real encouragement, that they have an identity now. And that identity is in God our Father. Don't, don't throw that little word away. God our Father. That's astounding. We who once were enemies of God. We who once were not his children, but we were once by nature children of wrath, it says, like the rest of mankind. He is now, as you placed your faith, as you repented and believed in Jesus Christ, you're no longer under the wrath of God. You're no longer in his wrath. You're no longer in the kingdom of darkness. Now, he says, you are in a church. You're a church who's in God our Father. That's your identity. You are part of his family, his church family. You've been adopted. You've been made a child, a daughter, a son of God. That identity is meant to give you encouragement, to give you strength, to give you hope for the future. Because if you are in God, then you're secure. If you are in God, then, then no one can take away your identity. No one can challenge that. It doesn't matter what earthly identities fall away due to affliction or persecution. Didn't matter if we're no longer those things. Doesn't matter if we don't fit into polite society anymore like the Thessalonians did not. 
They didn't fit into the Roman culture anymore. They didn't fit into the Greek culture. They didn't fit into the Jewish culture. They didn't fit into the debauchery around them. And Paul gives them encouragement and says, you now are a church that's in God our Father. And not only that, he says, you're in God our Father and in our Lord Jesus Christ. Your identity is secure because you are in the Lord of all creation. Your life is hidden with Christ. It's in Christ. In Christ, he is now, he's not just the chosen one of God that you are in. He's not just Jesus, the man that you're in, but he's all three, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Lord over all things. He's the creator of heaven and earth. That's who you are in. And he says, you are a church. You're part of God's family. You're his child. And you're in Jesus Christ. There's no need to fear affliction knowing that the sovereign of all is one that keeps you. You are in him. And I love that he begins that way. And then, you know, verse two, it almost looks like a direct repetition of that because he doesn't just say that, that we're in Jesus Christ and in, in, our, in, in God our Father, in the Lord Jesus Christ. He goes back again and he says, we give thanks to you, he says, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not just in God our Father and have are in our Lord Jesus Christ. We receive things from him too. So we're to be encouraged that our identity is in him and that we receive his grace and peace. We have real encouragement in what's been received. That's the second thing we're going to look at is that we have real encouragement, not just in our identity, but real encouragement in what's been received. Real encouragement by the fact that we have received the grace and peace of God. Why was that important for that church to know? Think about it for a second. You know, they were previously had peace because they were living under Roman rule, but now they're in opposition. They're in opposition to the culture around them. They're in opposition to the cult of the emperor. They're in opposition to the Jews now. They're in opposition to the culture of the Romans around them. They find themselves not at peace with the world around them. And they're tempted to be shaken. They're not at peace with the world around them. Maybe you find yourself not at peace. Hopefully, as a Christian, you find yourself in a good way not at peace with the world around you. Now, I don't mean that we're not trying to live at peace with all men as much as possible. What I mean is there is a direct conflict that comes when we live in conformity to the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's a direct conflict that comes between living for Jesus and those who live for the world. And by nature, that it will create conflict and a lack of peace between people who look at the way we live and when we say, no, that's not the right way to live. We want to live in a way that loves God, that honors God in conformity to the truth because it's actually the truth that sets us free. That's going to cause conflict. It caused conflict in that church. They didn't have peace with the world around them. They also were not experiencing favor or grace. It's the same kind of word. Grace is synonymous with favor. They weren't experiencing favor with the culture around them. They weren't experiencing favor in their communities. They were experiencing affliction. And they needed to hear that better than the favor of the world, better than the peace that comes from acclimating to the culture by giving in, by soft-pedaling the gospel, better than that, they had a grace, a favor from God is what they've received. And they've also received peace from God. No longer will they receive wrath. No matter what wrath we receive from the world around us, no matter what affliction and persecutions you might endure, we will never 
never endure God's wrath if you're a Christian. If you've placed your faith in him, the wrath that we deserve has already been placed on Jesus fully. That's what we believe. That's what we trust. That's what we hope. And, and the fact is that, that because Jesus took all the disfavor from God that we deserve, now we have all the favor that Jesus earned with God. We've received grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a peace that's unshakable. It's a peace that's eternal. It's not a peace that's temporal. It's a peace that lasts. Peace in favor of the world's fleeting, but we receive something greater. We don't need to be shaken because we have lasting favor, lasting grace from God. I love a quote that James Grant He wrote about this verse, he says, Paul is encouraging us in this greeting to gain the right perspective. We we need the right perspective. Gain the right perspective on what God has done for us. Not only does he describe the church as being hidden in God the Father and the Son, but he says it's possible through the peace and grace of God. God's own action, God's own initiative is undergirding our status before him. It's God's grace that's made us a part of the church. It's God's grace that's placed us in him. This is God's grace at work bringing us peace. If you are a Christian, you have something far better than peace with people who are unbelievers. You have something far better than favor of the world around you. You have the favor and peace of God forever. And one day, He's gonna reverse the fortunes that you might be experiencing here and he's gonna make all things right. He's gonna demonstrate that those who put their trust in Jesus are really the ones with lasting peace, lasting favor. He's our firm foundation. We receive peace from the sovereign of all creation. The question is, do you know the peace that comes from knowing God personally as Father? Do you know the peace that comes from knowing Jesus as your Lord? And if you do, are you living in the good of that grace and peace? Are you motivated by that? Does that encourage you this morning? Paul wants us to have strength and hope through those things, but he also wants us to have strength and hope through the real encouragement of God's work in our lives. He wants us to see that that God's work of growth is happening in our own lives. If you are a Christian and you see any growth in your life, that's an evidence that God is at work in you and that's meant to give you hope, And this meant to strengthen you for the future. If you look at verse three, it says we ought or we owe thanks. We we ought to always give thanks. We owe a debt of thanks. It's worded a little oddly. You're like, what do you mean, Paul, you ought to give thanks? Does it mean you're not giving thanks? Because in the English when you say, well, I ought to do this, you know, I'm not, I may not be doing that. It might be optional. But Paul's saying, we, we ought, we have an obligation to give thanks And he does give thanks. But why he has an obligation is because he's like, it's evident and it's right and it's good to give thanks. We have an obligation to give thanks because you are growing and God is at work in you. Paul, he's heard of their continual growth in faith. He's heard of how they're continuing to grow despite persecutions. He's he's seeing how they're, they're growing in their faith and they're abounding in their love. And so he's obliged. He said, it's right that I give God thanks for you. Now maybe some there didn't feel worthy of thanksgiving to God. The same could be true of us. You can think, well, there's there's not really much going on here. Yeah, I'm growing a little bit, but it's no big deal. At times we don't feel worthy when somebody says thank you to us. 
We feel unworthy because we are more aware of all the areas that we need to change. And so, so Paul says, no, it's actually right and it's good for me to give thanks to God because you really are growing and if there's any growth in you, it's not a result of your effort, it's a result of the fact that God has worked in you and he continues to be at work in you. That's, that's meant to encourage you. It, Christian, if you, you've had any growth in faith, you can be encouraged. The God of all creation, God your Father, he's at work in you. Jesus Christ is at work in your life if you have grown at all in your faith. If you've grown at all in your love for one another. And we need to hear that commendation. We need to hear that God's at work in us. That God is at work in us both to, to give us increasing faith and cause us to love one another more and more. You know, despite the, the pressure from around them, this, this church was growing in the middle of affliction. That's really astounding. You wouldn't expect the church to grow in affliction. That's just what's happening here. And so Paul's like, that only happens because of God. That only happens because of God. And he gives these two reasons. He says, I'm, I'm gonna, I wanna encourage you because you're, the, the literal translation is you're hyper-growing. You're, you're flourishing in your growth. You know, a couple weeks ago, I went to our garden that's right behind our house and went to pick some tomatoes from our plants and I realized that like seemingly overnight, this, this morning glory vine, it's a, it's a pretty flower, but it doesn't belong on tomato plants. Somehow it has sprung up on the tomato plants and it was beginning to, to choke them out. And it happened like in a day or two, it seems. It just happened almost immediately and it grew wildly. And, and the reason why that, although it was misplaced where it was growing, it grew wildly because it was really good soil there. And it was being watered two times a day by the automatic watering system here. And, and, and it, was, it was growing and it grew quickly and it was flourishing. And, and the faith of the Thessalonians, it was growing like that. They were grounded in the faith. They were grounded in God's word. They were being watered constantly by God's word. They were, they were flourishing. That's the picture that Paul is saying. He says, I, I want to give thanks to God because you are flourishing. You are hyper-growing. God's enabled you to hyper-grow and he doesn't just say, you're so smart, that's why you're growing. He says, no, God's at work in you. God's at work in you. You're growing in the faith. In church, the same's true about you. As, as I was thinking about this message, I was actually more aware that, that, that you all are growing, that we as a church body are growing in the faith. I hear so many reports week after week about people who are going through difficult times and shockingly, in the middle of difficult times, what I hear time after time of people who are facing the loss of a loved one or an illness or a weakness, people who are facing job losses and challenges, difficulties with children, difficulties in school, is that people's faith is growing and they're seeing God at work and they're continuing to grow. Church, that's, that's good news. God's at work. God's at work in each and every one of you. He's causing your faith to grow and increase. Now, sometimes we can think of faith as a, a thing, or faith is static. We can think of, of faith, and some people say, you know, I, well, I wish I had that kind of faith that, that she has. As if, as if faith is inherent, that, you know, either you have it or you don't, and no, we put our faith in God and, and it's like a little seed 
but it's cultivated. I think that's why Jesus gave that analogy. It's like faith is like a mustard seed, but boy, you put it in the ground, you put it in the ground of God's word, you water it, you, you cultivate it, you fertilize it, and that faith will grow. And that's true for each and every person here too, that just like the church in Thessalonica, we can grow our faith. Your faith doesn't need to remain stagnant. Your faith doesn't mean to, mean to remain where it is. Now, by God's grace, he grows our faith, but at the same time, he, he wants us to be encouraged that our faith can grow. Our faith grows. We don't lose it like you lose a, a pair of glasses Faith is actively trusting in God. It's cultivated through a relationship with God. It, it grows as we put our roots in the soil of his word. It, it, it grows when we latch on to, we cling to his promises, when we are nourished by relating on him and seeing his faithfulness and, and talking to other people about his faithfulness too. So we drink deeply from the refreshing that Jesus supplies to us. Our faith is something that's living and growing. And God is at work in you and it's growing in you. But not only that, Paul commends them for the second reason is that, that their faith, their love continues to abound or superabound. Paul actually uses some phrases here that are only used in the New Testament by him. He coins new words. You know, you're, you're hyper-growing. You're superabounding. I kind of like that because it gives me license as a pastor to make up words. It's great. You know, they're hyper-growing in the faith. They're super-abounding in love. Their church, he says, you're, you're seeking, you're full of every one of you is seeking to super-abound in love for each other. It's, it's like floodwaters overflowing their banks and, and, and watering everything around them. Instead of withdrawing from each other when they're hurt. And by the way, if you're a part of of the church family, not just this church family, but whatever your local church home is, if you're a part of a church family, you will be hurt. Not because hurt is good, but because that's what happens when you get close to people. It hurts, it's painful. Sometimes there's offense that happens. When you get to know somebody, the more you're tempted to have things about that person bother you. And he says, what's amazing here is that God is at work in you so much so that every one of you is as super abounding in love. The closer, closer you grow together as a family, the more you're loving towards each other. They're not backing away from each other when they're hurt. They're not withdrawing, but they're loving each other in a super abounding way. He says, God's at work in you. And, and that's true for this church too. I, I love, we got to go away a few weeks ago. We had a church retreat. We called it Renew. If you were a part of that, hopefully you saw that almost everybody, I, I can't think of anybody actually in the church who wasn't serving in some way. And, and I, I saw love for one another in practical ways. Love by people holding each other's babies, by um, caring for each other in very specific ways. And that happens in the daily life of this church as well. People bringing each other meals, people serving each other, people sacrificing, people giving of their time, giving of money, people giving in so many different ways towards each other. That's an evidence of the fact that God is at work in you and that you are growing and superbounding in love. It doesn't mean that life is painless or the relationships are easy, but God's at work in you. And that's meant to encourage you so you're strengthened Knowing that God has given you his love and he's causing you to superabound in love should give you strength to continue on and actually give you hope for the future as well. 
In both of these areas, by the way, in Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, these are the very two things he prayed for. He says, I want to come so I can supply what's lacking your faith. And then he, he prays that they would abound in their love for one another. And then now he's committing them in just a very short amount of time that they're, they're actually doing both those things. And he gives the credit to God. Church, you, any area of growth in your life, in faith or in love, is an evidence that God is at work in you. And he'll continue to be at work in you. And because Paul here, he's aware that their growth in faith, their increase in love for one another, is due to God's work in them. It's meant to give them encouragement that God's going to continue to work in them. And that he will keep them to the end. No matter what they face, no matter what affliction they're experiencing. And then he, he, he wants to strengthen them by giving them this encouragement that not only is God at work in you to grow you, but he's also at work in you to enable you to endure. He gives them real encouragement by their endurance. They're enduring, they're running the race, they're running hard. They hadn't given up. You know, I, I, I've never run a marathon and I hope never to run a marathon. I have no desire I'm sure there are many of you who have that wonderful desire to run a marathon. Enjoy. Um, for me, the idea of plodding along for 26.2 miles, I think that's right, 26.2 miles, somebody, um, okay, a couple of guys who I think might want to run marathons, is that accurate? Okay, all right, yeah, it's accurate, good. Um, it, that's, that's far too far to run for me. I, I have no desire to, to go that far. But it, it's good to know that you have the ability to run in some capacity. Uh, many years ago, not recently, many years ago, I ran a 10K. It's very small. I think it's 6.6 .6 miles or something like that. It's not very long. But at the end, I was actually really encouraged because I was able to endure. Um, I was able to get through it. I was able to finish it. It wasn't about the time as much, but it was back to the fact that no, I finished it when I didn't walk. You know, I was encouraged to know I could do it and, and just just finishing it was motivating and encouraging. Now, it's not motivating and encouraging me to do a marathon, but it's motivating and encouraging to me that I can keep going. In, in your life, if you have continued to endure because through persecution, through affliction, that's not some testimony to the fact that you're so smart, you're so great. It's, it's testimony to the fact that you're trusting in Jesus and he's sustaining you. And he's going to sustain you. He's going to make you steadfast. That word for steadfastness, it's the same word as perseverance or endurance in other passages in the New Testament. And it's the same, it's a characteristic of a, of a person who's, who's not swerved away from deliberate purpose. That, that it's, a, it's a continuing on in persevering in faith and persevering despite trials and suffering. It's enduring like a lighthouse that's, if you've ever seen those pictures of a lighthouse sitting up on a rocky cliff overlooking the ocean and, and there's waves, they come up and they crash all around the, the lighthouse and yet the lighthouse just stays there. It endures. It, it endures the wind, the waves, it stands tall and straight and Paul says, you're enduring. You're standing straight and tall in the Lord. You're standing firm in the faith because God is at work in you. And this Christian endurance, it's rooted in God. And he's, he's, he's both the object of their faith and their hope for faith. 
He's both the object of their growth and he's the hope for growth. He's the one who has ultimate control of their situation. And you might think it's strange that Paul here, he says he's boasting. You know, like, isn't, aren't Christians not supposed to boast? Aren't we supposed not to brag? But what he's doing, he's not boasting about their work because they're so smart. He's boasting about the fact that God is at work in them. And he's boasting the other churches saying, look at what God can do. Look at what God can do with people who are undergoing affliction and persecution. Look what God can do in even new believers. Look what God can do to grow faith and grow love, to cause to endure. And he's saying, look what God does. And he tells them that. I think we have a lot to learn about the way that Paul encourages the Thessalonians and how he communicates to the Thessalonians. He doesn't say, boy, you guys are so smart. You know, you did a great job. I'm proud of you. No, he says, you're enduring, and, and you, you're enduring because God's at work in you, because God's your Father, because Jesus Christ is the Lord, because you receive grace and peace from God, and you're growing in faith. You're not perfect. You're not over there. He's going to correct some issues later. You're growing in faith. You're not perfect in love, but you're, you're super abounding in love, and he wants to give them courage. You know, some people are, are rightly uncomfortable with kind of the thanks that points people to themselves, you know, says, hey, you're really great, you're really smart, you can do it. Well, maybe, but what if you're not so smart? What if you're not so great? Our hope is not in that. Our hope's not in fleeting abilities. Our hope's in, in the fact that our great God is helping us. He's the one who gives us grace. He's the one who gives us peace. He doesn't flatter, but he doesn't stay silent. Paul doesn't flatter them. He doesn't stay silent about them either. He communicates gratitude to God for them, directly to them, and then he points out God's work in them. That's what he does. They may have felt like, hey, we're not doing so great. And Paul says, no, I want to give you perspective. I want to remind you of who you are in God, your identity. I want to remind you of the fact that, that he's at work in you, that you're growing I want to remind you that you've received grace and peace. I want to remind you that, that you are in him and you are secure. You can endure. Because you have endured, he will enable you to continue to endure. We, we need real encouragement. You need the kind of encouragement that's not grounded in yourself. Not grounded in your identity and how smart you are, but in how great God is. The fact that you are in God our Father. We need that kind of encouragement. We need the encouragement knowing that we're in the Lord Jesus Christ. We need the encouragement knowing that, that he's at work in us, that he gives us his grace and his peace. We're meant to be strengthened knowing that God's at work growing our faith, growing our love for each other. And we all receive grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ if you've put your faith in Jesus. Now, now maybe you're here and you haven't done that. Maybe you're, you're not a Christian, but you're here, and we want to thank you for being here. We're grateful. But if you haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you haven't repented of your sins, place your faith in him for the forgiveness of sins, and if you're not daily trusting him for a new life, then I encourage you to do that because you won't know peace apart from God. You won't experience favor. You will be destined for wrath. You will be destined for punishment. But if you put your faith in Christ, you receive grace and peace. You can know him as your father. You can know Jesus as your Lord. 
when you're a persecuted Christian, you can know that you never will be persecuted by God because Jesus already endured the persecution that you deserve. Any persecution in this world, it will fade. It's not a sign of God's displeasure. Um, only man's displeasure. God allowed Jesus to undergo persecution. And it wasn't because Jesus had done something wrong. No, he's actually perfectly fulfilling, carrying out God's plans in every way. And Jesus says, if you follow me, you're gonna, you're gonna do the same kind of things. But take heart, he says, I've overcome this world. Christian, if you are being afflicted, know that you ultimately will not be afflicted by God because Jesus has already borne all of your afflictions. You're never gonna be afflicted by God. And, and instead, actually, you're gonna enjoy all the blessings, all the benefits of God forever. In the meanwhile, don't grow weary. Don't be discouraged. You have an identity that's unshakable. You're a part of a family. You're part of a church family. It's not a perfect family yet, but you're a part of a church family. You're, you're God's daughter, God's son. Your identity is in Jesus. You've received grace and peace. God's at work in you to both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You know, we used to watch uh, police detective shows. There's not really any great ones on right now, but my wife and I used to like to watch police detective shows and, and often the police in those shows, would they would put out a bolo. If you know what a bolo is, anybody here know what a bolo is? Be on the lookout. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like, I think of that as a 70s Starsky and Hutch kind of term. It's, it's, um, uh, it's kind of archaic, but you know, there's a, hey, I'll put out a bolo. They're on the lookout for a criminal. Or they're on the lookout for somebody committing a crime or perpetrating some bad activity. And after 9-11, the, the New York Metropolitan Transit Authority, they put out a saying that said, you know, if you see something, say something. Church, I, I want to kind of put a bolo out there for you. Uh, be on the lookout. Don't, this is what Paul is modeling here for us. He's encouraging the church. And I think we're, we're meant to not only take that encouragement for ourselves and, and see all those things for ourselves, but we're meant to encourage others. And so church, be on the lookout. Not for criminal activity, not for faults, not for fault finding. You're a family, you're gonna see each other's faults more closely. And, and that's easy, right? It's easy to see, you know, it's easy to see problems. People think, oh, I have the gift of discernment because I can pick out all the problems and issues in my church family. No, you don't. You're just a critic. That's really easy. It's not gifted to see problems. What takes effort is to see where God's at work, to be a, a grace detective and say, you know what? Of course people have faults. Of course they're failing. Of course they have issues. Of course they need to grow because we're not, we, none of us have arrived yet. And if you think, oh my gosh, I found out this person has a fault. Well, don't be surprised because you have some too. That's not the shocking thing. That's not, the, that's not what we're called to do is point out faults. It doesn't say find fault with one another. Look for each other's problems. Be detectives and wait for everybody to slip up. No, that's the opposite of grace. That's not what God gives us. He gives us grace and peace. And he says, no, I want you to, I want you to do this. I want you to encourage one another. As long as it's called today, it says, actually. As long as it's still called today, encourage one another. When you, whenever you get together, be grace detectives. Be on the lookout. Look for areas. Is there any area where my brother or sister is growing in faith? Well, man, if they are, that's what's astounding because it's easy to be 
to fail. It's easy to have problems, easy to have issues and faults. We all have those. It's easy to sin. What's not is to grow in faith. So if anybody's growing in faith, I want to point that out to them because that's a work of God in their life. We need that too, don't we? I need to hear that. We all need to hear that. And, and if somebody's demonstrating love for one another, point that out because that's what we need to hear. God's at work in you. You're growing. Not condescendingly, but man, I can see God's at work in you. I can see how you love that person. That's inspiring. Thank you for responding to God. Thank you for demonstrating God's love to that other person. I want you to be on the lookout for that. But don't stop there. If you see something, say something. Give thanks to God. That's what Paul does. He gives thanks to God. He does it in front of them, to them, for them. He gives thanks to God. He said, God's really at work in you. Man, thank God that he's, he's at work in you so evidently, so clearly, that your faith is growing. And that's inspiring. It inspired Paul. He had no shame in saying, it was inspiring to me. Your faith is growing. It's inspiring to me. Your, your love is increasing, superabounding all the more. Church, I, I think we can, we can grow in that. We can give thanks to God for those things. Start there. Give thanks to God for what you've seen in another person. Give thanks to God for the Holy Spirit's activity in someone else's life. And encourage people in the same way he does. He, he gives us this little model. He encourages us about their identity. Sometimes we get discouraged and, and we are bummed out because we don't feel very smart. We don't feel very good. We don't feel very talented. And we tell ourselves this narrative, this negative self-talk of, I can't do this. I'm not able. I'm not very smart. This is too hard for me. And, and Paul says, no. Once you remember, you're in God, your Father, and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing's too hard for him. And if he's in you, if you're in him, then he's, he's going to enable you to do whatever he's calling you to do. And, and in fact, he's working in you. So encourage about identity. Encourage about God's grace and peace. Encourage where you see God at work. And encourage where you see any endurance at all. And because of that, that's the foundation for, for real strength for today. That's what Paul gives them. That's what, that's what God gives us. Real strength for today comes from encouragement in him. Real strength for today and it's, and it's, to quote to him, bright hope for tomorrow. Really, that's the, the theme of this whole little three-chapter letter in Thessalonians is strength for today, bright hope for tomorrow. Just like that old hymn, great is thy faithfulness. Strength for today, bright hope from tomorrow that comes from being encouraged in him. Let's continue to be encouraged in him by encouraging each other, amen? Why don't we pray? Father, thank you for your encouragement and your word. I pray that you would enable us to not only be encouraged by you, but to give thanks and to encourage each other. And Lord, I pray that through that you would strengthen us and sustain us in Jesus' name, amen.